Many years ago, during a British conference on comparative religion, esteemed experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. What would you have said? They began eliminating the possibilities. Is it the incarnation? Mm, no, other religions had different versions of God appearing in some kind of human form. Uh, what about the resurrection? They thought about it. No, other religions had some kind of account of people who had risen from the dead or come back to life. The debate went on for some time until a stout professor entered the room. What's this rumpus about? He abruptly asked. And he heard his colleagues and listened to them discussing Christianity's uniqueness from various points of view. With a quick-witted grin, he quickly sized up the situation and said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. As you might have guessed, the professor was C.S. Lewis. Indeed, if you think about it, he was right. No matter how many times we hear stories of it, no matter how much we study it, no matter how many times we experience grace for ourselves, there's something profoundly amazing about grace. The story of the Bible is a story of God's grace, his unmerited favor shown towards mankind since the dawn of creation. The tension in the story comes from us, from the fact that we've rebelled against his grace. We heard this morning from Obadiah concerning the pride of Edom and God's judgment against them. As we turn to our passage in James, we'll see the power of God's grace, whom it lifts up and whom it casts down. Please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. It's found on page 1012 if you're using the Pew Bibles. This uh, short letter of James, the half-brother of Jesus, it's got to be a stressful position. I share the name James, so I'm, I'm particularly fond of this short little book. Uh, it was written to Jewish Christians who are scattered across the region by persecution. And it contains a pattern, a pattern of warnings and of promises intended to guide life in the early church to true faith and true obedience. We'll see that here in chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Our passage, specifically James 4.6, identifies the stark contrast between God's attitude toward the proud and his attitude toward the humble. So let me read verse 6 again. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
we find the gospel of good news here within just these few words. I'm going to highlight for you two quick points. First, the power of pride. And second, the power of humility. So let's first consider the power of pride. The reference in verse 6 is a reference back to the Old Testament, to Proverbs 34, verse, or chap, chapter 3, verse 34. In that chapter of Proverbs, we're given numerous examples of the blessings of wisdom, followed by God's judgments on evil. Verse 34, it says, Towards the scorner, he, God, is scornful, but towards the humble, he gives favor. James interprets these scorners as the proud, so that we see that pride is a source of corruption, both with a person's relationship towards God, but also in their relationship towards others. And what is God's response? He opposes them. At first glance, that might sound passive as a matter of opinion, perhaps as in William saying, I oppose higher taxes. But the word James uses for oppose is far more severe. It's a military term, and it means arrayed in battle. God is declaring war upon pride, upon your pride. If anything should fill you with terror, it should be the image from God's word of his vast armies pointed at you, the full weight of his eternal might and power aimed down the barrel towards your heart. The Old Testament is filled with stories of what happened when God and the proud collide, and it's not pretty. The people of Babel, Sodom, King Pharaoh, Goliath, King Nebuchadnezzar, Haman, many others, none of them were left standing. So there's a grave warning to the proud. They are as dead men and women walking. But why? What makes pride so much more dangerous than anything else? I mean, today we use the word, word loosely and apply it towards all sorts of things, like I'm proud of my kids, most of the time, or I'm proud to be an American, most of the time, or this pickup is my pride and joy. Okay, I, I might not say that one, I, I drive a Ford Focus, but anyway, uh, you see my point. Isn't pride simply just getting carried away with being satisfied in one's talents or abilities? Well. Fortunately, Jesus uh, answers that question for us, and he uses a few parables to help clarify the matter. One is the story of the prodigal son. Most of you are familiar with the younger brother's descent into selfishness, and he hits rock bottom, feeds the pigs, and then finally comes to his senses, and he says, uh, I must return to the, the embrace of my father. But like the title of the parable, we often forget the other character, the older brother. Not only was he scornful, of his foolish younger brother and his, his profligate life, but he was angry with his father for forgiving him. Why? Well, he felt he'd lived a superior life. He'd performed a more holy devotion. He'd expected that his father's grace should be directed towards him. He'd deserved it with his works. The story ends in a cliffhanger. The older brother's there at the door of the party and we're left to wonder whether he'll heed his father's call, whether his father's grace will pierce his hard heart. And that's what's so insidious about pride. It causes a form of spiritual blindness. Most other sins, like lying, for example, you're aware immediately when you commit it. And usually the worse you do it, the worse you feel. Your, your guilt kicks in. 
the prodigal brother, or the, sorry, the prodigal brother, the younger brother, he at least knew he was desperately lost and he felt deeply ashamed. Some sins are just so terribly aware, not only to yourself, but to all of those around you. You just feel it. Pride does the opposite. The prouder you are, the more righteous you see yourself. Like the older brother, the Pharisees, listening to Jesus' parable, they realize that pride makes, ob- uh, sorry, makes oblivious fools of even the most well put together, the most successful, the most powerful people. Sometimes that's us. Perhaps that's you. Be warned, brothers and sisters, because pride is an insidious disease. The closer you are to death, the happier and healthier you feel. Pride is like a falling man who convinces himself that he's flying right up until he hits the ground. How does this happen? Let's look at what pride does inside of a person. Most sins, like coveting, take something that's good, that God created, and has a proper place, but they make it into an ultimate desire. It's a form of modern idolatry. We want something. We want a spouse, a job, a house, a better body. We want something so much that we place it above our obedience to God. We make the thing, or the pursuit of it, a source of ultimate satisfaction, far beyond what God had ever intended. This need gets placed on a pedestal in our hearts, and our thoughts and our desires and our interests begin to fixate on it. Our time and energy get pulled into orbit. We are, in effect, worshiping this idol in our lives. And what is the idol of pride? It's ourselves. Pride is so deadly because it warps us in on ourselves. We don't even have to look for something outside of ourselves to make us happy. We don't seek satisfaction upwards with God or outwards towards other, but ever more inward. We become numb to the value of things outside and only appreciate ourselves. And so we slumber ever more deeply, and soon we forget that we were ever awake. Pride can also be violent. It's thin-skinned, impatient, easily provoked, easily offended. Lewis said that pride is intrinsically competitive. It's the sin that as we become blind to it in our own lives, we become ever more hypersensitive to it in others. In fact, he said, pride is the anti-God state of mind, the root of our rebellion against him. It's a threat to everyone because pride is a sin which allows even the most lowly and despicable person to take delight in scorning someone else. Just think of the state of mind of the thief on the cross who used his dying moments on this earth to join the crowd in mocking Jesus. Pride is also the ultimate corrupter. It can take almost any blessing, any success, any victory, and turn it into a curse. You got that promotion? Great, you're starting to feel like you finally got your due. You can hold your head a little bit higher when you're around your peers. Are the kids doing well? Great. It makes you wonder why the family beside you is having so much trouble getting them to behave. Did you give generously to someone who had a need? It starts to feel nice to know that your good sense saved the day. Did you finally overcome some pernicious temptation that you've been battling? Maybe you should start giving advice to other people about how they can be more self-disciplined. Everything that pride touches, turns it from an orientation of thanksgiving to God towards satisfaction in oneself. Why, you can even feel prideful getting to speak a sermon on pride. 
how many blessings in our life become tainted and tarnished by the cancer that is our pride. It's the ultimate idol, the ultimate destroyer, the ultimate violation of God's command to love him fully and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's why God declares war and why we are in his crosshairs. Perhaps you're here this evening and you don't think that's you. You're usually pretty friendly and you don't see yourself as someone who'd be described as a scorner, but pride can be very, very sneaky and it burrows deeply into our hearts and can lie quietly in wait. So let me offer a, a quick spiritual quiz. Here are some warning signs that you may be struggling with pride. Number one, you really don't appreciate criticism. Criticism's a threat to our self-idol. Number two, you have a temper. Number three, you relish and enjoy having responsibility and being given authority. Number four, you have high expectations for yourself and for others. We live in a society that values symbols of success and performance, whether it's our resumes or our social media profiles or our personal appearance. Number five, you might be prideful if you care a lot about what others think of you. Number six, you might struggle with pride if you don't care whatsoever what other people think of you. Tend to fall more in the latter category, unfortunately. Pride is so sneaky because sometimes we can confuse modesty with just blatant disregard for other people and their opinions and views. Number seven, and hopefully this catches most of us, you may struggle with pride if you're a man or if you're a woman. We live in a culture that, value, that values empowerment, and being clever, being independent, being strong. All things that the enemy can leverage to make us chafe at our dependence before God. If any of those describe you, don't despair. Our loving God has charted a path home, just like with the prodigal son. James is pointing the way. So let's turn to the second point, the power of humility. Humility, James tells us, receives the opposite response from God. He gives grace. He lifts up. He exalts, as verse 10 says. The word for humi humility literally means low estate. Physically, being, being low, down to the ground. Could be good, could be bad. Um, the Bible describes two starkly different ways that people can reach this lowly estate. There are some that are described as having humbled themselves. And there are others who the Bible describes as being humbled. They were humbled. The prophet Isaiah makes this contrast between the two cases clear. In Isaiah 10, verse 33, we read, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop off the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the, lo the lofty will be brought low. And then later in Isaiah 66, verse 2, we find the opposite. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. So humbling oneself is certainly preferable to being cut low, especially by God, but how do we do that? How do we cultivate that in our hearts and in our lives? Well, first, let's make sure we know what we mean when we're referring to humility, what it is and what it is not. Humility is not false modesty. It's not speaking about yourself in self-deprecating manners and an endless string of, no, you, you, you go first. 
Humility is not rooted in a negative view of yourself or a pessimistic view of your abilities or your bodies or our entire lives. One can't grow humble by cultivating greater shame or dwelling on our flaws and our failings and our limitations as created creatures. That's just another way that the enemy is keeping us focused on ourselves rather than God. We must remember that God's endowed even the most lowly life on this earth with value and with dignity. Our creator has made each of us in his image. We each reflect, however imperfectly, a facet of God's holy nature. Indeed, we should take godly delight in being made his handiwork, his sacred workmanship. And we are fully equipped for every good thing which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Those who are in Christ are, in fact, temples for the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, the very hands and feet of our Lord and Savior. And this is the path that points us towards humility, seeing God and seeing others as they truly are, not as they appear through the eyes of this world. We serve an amazing, infinite, majestic, all-powerful, wise, loving God, one that lets us call him Father. Humility is an honest reckoning of who we are and who God is in the comparison between the two. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but of thinking of yourself less often and seeing that God is more and inconceivably more. Where's the scale that on the one hand can weigh our character and strength and might on the one side, and yet even encompass the tiniest sliver of God's character, strength, and might on the other? In heaven, when we're equipped with new bodies that can perceive and withstand God's glory and might, I think humility will merely be described as common sense. And by this striving to see God rightly, we see our neighbors rightly also. We see through holy eyes that it's not only the esteem of God that gives anything in creation, we, we see that it's only the esteem of God that gives anything a modicum of true worth. The Gospels powerfully show how Jesus served the meek, the poor in spirit, the widows, the orphans, the lepers, the blind, the little children. Therefore, so should we. If Jesus, our master, took the form of a servant, then so should we. The Bible reminds us repeatedly that the esteem of God is opposite the esteem of the world. In the eternal economy of heaven, the first will be last and the last will be first. The lowly are the ones who are lifted up. So how do we strive to live lives of humility? The answer is there for us in verse 6. Through the power of God's grace. God gives more grace. Not just some grace. Not enough grace. It's not merely sufficient. It's not just adequate. God gives an abundance of grace. Grace over and above and beyond what we can ever need or hope or imagine or think to ask for. We must impatiently be the one knocking on God's door, daily in prayer, seeking his grace. We must ask his spirit to fill us with his fruit. We must seek to be given hearts of flesh, open to the dis uh, discipline, training, and trials that God may place in our life. In the second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul teaches us that God can use thorns as his instruments but not to harm us, but to kill our pride, to give us humble and contrite spirits. 
Let's remember to thank God for the thorns that perhaps he's placed in our lives. Verse 9 says, the Lord told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's the power of humility, being emptied of our pride so that we're open to receive God's grace. It's the empty vessel that God can fill. Praise God that even our humble and broken circumstances are ways that we can come to the end of ourselves and into the arms of a loving father who can lift us up and carry us through. In just a few moments, we'll be turning to communion. We'll be reminded that the victory of Christ came through his ultimate act of humility. Christ lived a life of submission to his father's will, service to the low, to the needy, to the outcast. He ultimately surrendered his life on a cross to redeem the prideful, rebellious sinners such as you and I. But as James has said, God exalted the humble, and so he raised Christ to life and eternal victory over sin and death. Just beyond the horizon of this world, God's armies are on the march. The king is on the move. Very soon, and we don't know how soon, all the proud, the self-confident, the scoffers, the mockers of this earth, they will be cut down and laid to waste. We must repent, flee from our pride, cling desperately to Christ. Place all your faith, all your trust, all your hope, your very lives at Jesus' feet, today and every day. Will you please join me in prayer? Father God, forgive us for our stubborn and prideful hearts. Teach us through your spirit to fully submit to you as Lord over every corner of our lives. Empty us of our selfish idols that we may be filled to overflowing with your grace. Make us humble like your servant, Jesus Christ, that we may be raised up with him to victorious life everlasting. In Christ's name, amen.